Hey guys, thank you all for listening. Just a fair warning, if you haven't listened to part one of this two-part episode, I highly encourage you to head over and check it out before listening to this one. If you have though, thanks for returning and let's get back to it. I'll go, I'll go ahead and preface this one. Uh, this is my favorite on on the record, and I think this is actually the one that had the most commercial success. Yeah, am I, am I, think I wrong? So. Am I yes, okay. it reached thirty seven on the charts. Yeah, I think this is the one that had the the, mo- the biggest commercial success. I just I love the way this song is constructed, and the the vocal melody is really catchy. And uh, I love the intro when those organs come in, like when that when that organ comes in after the drums oh, yeah. and everything. That was actually added in the '87 version. Um, oh wow! Yeah, it was, but which is genius because I love that organ there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the the lead vocals on this song are by or by John Miles, which is the same man who sang "Cask of Amontillado," uh, and then there's uh, additional vocals on it by Jack Harris. And um, I actually saw um, there's a live DVD of of the Alan Parsons project in like the 90s, and he was playing um, he was playing with, with with his band, and his band every single one of the members of his band sings, every single one of them, the guitarist, the bassist, the drummer, uh, the keyboard player, every single one of them sing, and he was playing with them, and I saw this song live, and I have to say it was amazing. And it was it was amazing live hearing the studio track come to life in that way um, because all of the elements were still captured and it just made it 50 times better. Uh, I highly encourage checking it out on, on YouTube. Just typing in this song live and listen to it. It's in the 90s some sometime when they were when they were touring live, um, but it's absolutely incredible, super awesome, super cool. But. Um, Rachel, you said that you've never heard of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather before listening to the to the record. Is that right? Oh, I never had. To me, never. this was an incredibly obscure piece. I was like, what is this? What it's got to be Poe. Yeah. And it made me go and um, look it up, obviously, okay. and read it. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's not poetry. It is um, another one of his short stories. Okay, it's a short um, story. It's a little bit longer than Telltale Heart or um, Casco Montiato, which are both about... I mean, Telltale Heart, it's incredibly short. It's like three pages, three, four pages. And then okay. Casco Montiato is only like you know, eight pages. Um, gotcha. Dr. Char and Professor Feather is a little bit longer, um, but it reads so fast, it doesn't feel like that, actually. And it is a really intriguing story, actually. Really? I, oh, yeah. And I, I love Madness, so which is probably one reason I enjoy Poe. And yeah. also, like, you know, Dark Side or certain concepts that are you see in a lot of prog rock would be yeah. Madness. Um, and um, this is the definition. You know, this one... Uh, is definitely the definition of madness as well as Telltale Heart. For really? Sure. Yeah. What What is the What is the uh, just kind of a brief overview of the story yeah. of this? Because I, I'm curious because this is, it's it's my favorite one on the record oh. and it's got so many great musical elements in it and, and it's, um, it, it seems honestly like this song to me seems kind of, it doesn't seem it doesn't feel dark. It's actually kind of uplifting almost, and 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 from musically how how it's kind of. When I listen to it, I, I don't feel like it's a, you know, it's not like Corporal Clegg or something. Like, it's just, it's it feels like it's, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have that kind of like, whoa, this is mysterious. Just 
feels like a pretty straightforward but pretty innovative rock song. Uh, so I'm just I'm just curious what kind of the, a brief overview of the story. Um, hey, Drew, have you read this one? I have not. I okay. I was like you, but I didn't take the initiative to actually read it. Okay, so um, it, it just uh, the premise of the story, and I think you're going to actually really enjoy some of the musical elements that they've done here with oh, this. sweet. Destin, more so when you know the yeah. story. Um, but uh, just to preface all this, this one as well as Amontillado are my two favorites on the album. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, I, oh, yeah. And they're both totally different, and so that's why I, pr I probably like them the same amount but differently um, because they're portraying something completely different. That's right. But um, so basically the premise of... Um, the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather is that there is a gentleman who um, he's writing with a friend of his and he's heard that there is this like lunatic asylum, you know, um, nearby. He's, he's in the medical profession and his friends like a doctor as well. And they've developed this new um, soothing system, right. For like helping the patients or something. And he wants to go check it out. And his friend is like, Oh man, I'm not going there, you know? Um, but I know the guy who was the, you know, superintendent of the place, you know, um, I'll, I'll tell you how to get there. Or he takes, he, go, he rides with him there and then he like gets the hell out of there. And the guys, you know, knocks on the door and meets the gentleman who, um, is the superintendent. And, um, the guy like brings him in and is like, Oh yes, I'd like to show you, you know, what's, what's going on in our asylum and blah, blah, blah. You know, but he says, first off though, I would like to, um, you know, let you rest up. We'll have dinner and then you can have like a tour of the, you know, the grounds or whatever, um, tomorrow or something. Um, and so basically the premise is he has dinner at this, um, at this like mansion at this, you know, um, this, um, facility with a, group of people who are actually the lunatics in the insane asylum oh geez. and as okay. he continues you know and come to find out that the guy who had opened the door is also a lunatic um and he seems very incredibly knowledgeable and all this stuff and he um went insane by being there um and the people who were the nurses and were in charge of all of these lunatics have been locked up in like the dungeon or like in like the basement of this um, asylum, tarred and feathered. Okay, Whoa. so he um, said that you know that his new method is like oh we 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 don't do the soothing system anymore. The new method has been invented by Doctor Tar and Professor Feather, right? And um, so. And it's it's interesting because I don't know if the narrator himself is reliable. That's what I enjoy about certain pieces of pose and other fiction that involves madness yeah. is that sometimes yeah. you don't know if the narrator themselves is trustworthy. And that's right. intentional, of course. Right. Um, and because he says, oh, well, this gentleman was here and he must have gone insane himself. And then he kind of comes to and and all of that. Um, and I'm like, well, I don't know if that's true. You know, if this guy ever really was. Um uh, sane at all but um he you know ends up being able to leave and things are kind of restored to the soothing system um so it, it doesn't end in a horrible creepy way but I love the last thing that he says it's it's kind of like he doesn't know whether to have believed him about Dr. Tar and Professor Feather or not um because I don't know if he ever sees them tarred and feathered it's just very much you as the reader know what's going on you can figure out okay that um because the last sentence it's just really great um 
He says, I have only to add that although I have searched every library in Europe for the works of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, I have, up to the present day, utterly failed in my endeavors at procuring an edition. Right. So he clearly leaves and is like, what just happened here? You know? Yeah. <laughs> what have I just experienced? Like it's some, Be- yeah, some right. weird universe. Uh, yeah, like what is going on? But he obviously like continues to wonder: Is there really a Doctor Tar and Professor Feather? Were they kidding? Were they, you know? Um, but the dinner that he has with these lunatics is very weird. Um, but there's a lot of noise going on. Um, That's what that noise was so, in the middle of yes, the track. Those, the, those well, crowd noises and everything at the very beginning when it's starting, and mm-hmm. you're hearing like all this background noise, and clearly like some people and like a, like a um it's the dinner that's taking place okay um, that's what the noises and, are is that what yes, you're okay yes okay. and there's that's a lot super of super neat yeah and this dinner is very raucous like there's this one woman who keeps referencing like chickens and like crowing like a chicken and like you know there's another guy that keeps you know re- referencing diff- certain things and so there's just all these really weird things that go on um and yet at the same time he's questioning for a little bit until he kind of gets to a point where he's like, okay, I think these are actually the lunatics. He, it's like he's been so sucked into um, the the people and the the asylum that again, you wonder if he himself is crazy not to have questioned this from the very beginning. Um, yeah, because you, as the reader, know from the beginning something's up with these people. They, yeah, they're this off. is not normal. This but is he not doesn't normal. know that. But he's he's proceeding as if oh was a little odd but okay you know like he keeps going for a little bit until it's like, it gets it's like to this a guy point. like doesn't understand social cues and he's that guy you're just kind of like okay dude we gotta go like we, we gotta go. stop talking to us like we, we need to leave like it was a great party thank you but like we, we gotta go but he doesn't get it like he doesn't get that we're trying to leave <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean don't you think it was really weird that that guy just like urinated all over the table in public i mean i don't do it but it's like not <laughs> like the worst thing it's I've not seen. the it's worst like thing I've weird. seen. It's yeah. really weird. Like, yeah. I don't do it, but gosh. Yeah, like it finally, that basically, it finally escalates to a point where I think he hears the the noise of the people in the basement who were actually the the nurses and the doctors. And then it's like, oh, now obviously I'm eating dinner with the lunatics. You know, like it takes wow. him a while to get there. And I understand like maybe if you, you know, if these people are more charismatic and, you know, I mean, sometimes you don't know if somebody is sane or not. Um, if they're very good at putting on that facade, especially like sociopaths and like other people that deal with certain kinds of mental illness, they're actually very charismatic and you would never know until it gets to a certain point. So that's kind of what's going on. But I just, you know, again, the, the feel of this story isn't creepy so much as it is, um, like black humor or like uh, dark humor, very, um, it's supposed to be very amusing in a very dark way, which is why that last, you know, sentence is like, I've never been able to find an edition by Dr. Tar and Professor Feather about their work. Well, clearly yeah. you haven't because tar and feather means you've tarred and feathered su- the superintendents of this insane asylum. <laughs> you <Wow>. know, <laughs> that is really interesting. I, I, was, yeah. I was, I went ahead and I pulled up some of the lyrics that goes, cause that was now I was interested in, and hearing like when Dr. Tar and Professor Feather are used in the song in what context and so I'll, I'll read the, the very first stanza of, of the song, the lyrics of the very first stanza. So as a, at the far end of your tether and your thoughts won't fit together, so you sleep light or whatever, and the night goes on forever, then your mind change like the weather. You're in need of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. So that what I see there is kind of the, the relation, or no, 
it's it's almost it, i feel like these are the people in the asylum talking to this man like i feel like that that's what this is what that's what that if i can talk that is what this stanza is portraying like the people are talking to this man that you're in need of this like come stay with us or whatever which is really interesting and also i, I wanted to ask you a question about this too because you um the the very beginning of the song where it has a really deep low voice just what you need to make you feel better and it's like over and over what is your what is your i guess uh interpretation of that i'm i'm curious because it's a i think it's i i think it's a really cool part of the song but it was it seems like it was certainly intentional to like bring down the like a really low pitch and make it kind of growly and um almost kind of i guess haunting uh, to to a certain extent uh but i think it's just kind of reminds me of this dark feel to it but i wanted to know what your interpretation of that was yeah because it's totally different from the main vocals yes exactly Exactly. absolutely completely different i don't know um i guess i've never completely thought of it i've just loved the way it's done yeah Um, yeah. but taking it to a different level what what would i interpret that to be um i think it's like i said setting that dark tone yeah and that um that tone of um like um this is all really serious in a way like you know if these people in the were actually tarred and feathered by the you know members of the insane the lunatics in the insane asylum that's actually a very serious thing but right. the whole um element or the whole theme of the story is very amusing in a way so and the lyrics are very playful the way that the, they rhyme um oh, they're yeah. they're fun they're catchy this song is very catchy um so it's no you know question or no surprise that it was the one that hit you know on the charts oh certainly um yeah it was it's a so, it's a pretty awesome pretty awesome rock song really right it's a great song so you're getting the playfulness of the lunatics in the asylum but you're also getting underneath like the dark the dark undertone of like there's still there's still madness here yes this story still deals with madness in a somewhat humorous way but it's there yeah and it's it's yeah i like that kind of the the undertone like the playfulness up above with the undertone of this dark insanity with, with the with the asylum because even even relating that to the way that the song is created it's obviously lowered in pitch you know, the way those vocals are, are are put there, but it's also actually underneath the mix as well. Like it's it's not the forefront of the music when that when that part comes in. It's kind of pulled down a little bit and you can kind of hear I mean you can make out what they're saying, but it's it's not the forefront. The guitar is really the forefront of the very beginning of that song. Uh whenever when everything comes in. So that's super interesting. That's really do you have do you have anything to add on that, Drew? No, I just I, I think it's also to me one of my favorites on the album because like you said it's just a well-crafted rock song very like you said very catchy and yeah it's just very good but no i'm glad that uh yeah we got some more context behind that because that helps a lot it's that's that's really neat and now i i really want to read that too yeah oh yeah me too actually that's that is it sounds very intriguing to to, in a way like especially especially knowing the ending i make it makes me want to read it to, to understand that. I feel the first thing I actually thought of when you were reading that is like, Oh, that would be a really good movie if, if done well that, you know, uh, to have that, I don't know, Christopher Nolan needs to pick up that film Whoa. and do, and do talk to tar. Yeah. I don't, I only trust him to do something like this. Whoa. Whoa. 
Honestly, that was a, like a pretty good choice, though. Right? I, I think, yeah, right absolutely. Like, I mean, <laughs> honestly, like because he's 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 good at he's anyway, yeah, he's yeah. he's good at making stuff like that. Well, let's. Did you see the Prestige? I mean, come on. Uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Gosh, uh, did you see Balto? So, holy cow! What does that have to do with anything? I, I, don't, I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right, let's let. Yeah, shoot, that's unreal. So let's flip over the uh, the the record here, and uh, which is on to the next side, and this is the the six five part. Excuse me, five part of uh, I guess five parts in sections. Uh, five part section of the fall of the House of Usher, which is an instrumental piece, primarily orchestral. Uh, I, I would I would assume. Eh, yeah, yeah, it's it's primarily orchestral, but it has other elements that are that are thrown in it as well. But uh, we'll we'll take a listen to the prelude here, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, what what this uh, the tone that this is setting for this entire piece. Because I I kind of I separate the, the this this song from the rest of the album. It, it really is incredibly different. Um, but let's take a listen. Shadows of shadows. Passing. It is now 1831, and as always, I am absorbed with a delicate thought. It is how poetry has indefinite sensations, to which end, music is an essential, since the comprehension of sweet sound is our most indefinite conception. Music when combined with a pleasurable idea, is poetry. Music without the idea is simply music. Without music or an intriguing idea, color becomes pallor. Man becomes carcass. Home becomes catacomb. And the dead Ah, but for a moment, motionless. Something I didn't notice until literally just now is, and Drew, I don't know if, if you if you heard this as well as with and, and Rachel, did you hear those noises that were going on in the background while while Orson Welles was talking? Uh, these, that these was the first weird... time I noticed it too. Actually, did you seriously? Yeah. I mean, I, I when I was listening, to that, I was like, "Whoa, what the heck is that?" Like, it almost sounded like something, like some kind of like freakish, like scream. alien dying. Yeah, or, or a scream or something, but very, very buried in the mix, very, very far yes. off in the distance with a lot of exactly. echo. Yeah. No, I yeah. heard that too. But it kind of, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of like in a movie. If like this, like like somebody's walking into a cave, right? And you hear like the drips of the water, and you can hear the echoing chambers. But then, you, and way back in the background, you hear like the scream. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I do. This definitely. is yeah. so cool if you know the story. So, oh man, <laughs> yeah, it yeah, is. that's that is super cool. But yeah, this I, this honestly, Drew, I want I wanted you to say something real quick because for for people who don't know who Orson Welles is, obviously this narration was of course added in 1987. But can you can you just tell everybody who Orson Welles is? Yeah. Um, so I actually don't know like his whole career, but his biggest contribution to pop culture is Citizen Kane. 
So that is historically known as one of the greatest movies of all time. Of course, people listening to this will have different opinions. And apparently in recent years, that's been a huge point of contention with a lot of modern, you know, film critics, film historians, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Um, but for years on, I, I, I guess you chose me to ask about this because I majored in film, but uh, <laughs> it's been years. I feel like I'm out of practice, but I, um, I just, I just knew that you were an Orson Welles fan. So. Right. Well, no, I just, I, I really appreciate, I know Rachel really loves Citizen Kane too. So it's cool that I she's, she's Citizen on this Kane. episode as well. But, um, you know, for years for, and I don't know how, how many years I have a feeling it was over 50 there's a very well-respected list in the film community called sight and sound lists, like, you know, top 100 or whatever films of all time. Sure. Right. And, and yeah. it comes out every year because different films are put on there and different perspectives are added on stuff that have been around for a while. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, it's updated every year. When I was in film school, I want to say the, the year that my teacher told me this 2016, maybe 2015, for I think 50 plus years, Citizen Kane always had number one. Nothing had beaten it out for years. Wow. And then I don't know why or where I need to do more research on this, but the, the year I, uh, I was there in that film class, he said, this is the first year something has beaten it out. It got number two this year. And first was Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock, which was really interesting to me. That's a really hmm. good movie. Um, but anyways, uh, Yes, That's Orson Welles, like like Rachel mentioned briefly in passing earlier, uh, wrote, directed, and starred as the main character in Citizen Kane. Um, and the guy was very much focused on actors, right? And and you know that's partially what directors are supposed to do. But in film, it depends what kind of a director you have. Some directors like to work a lot more closely with their cinematographer than they do with their actors, and they just trust their actors. This guy, this is Leo, you know, some of them might say, okay, I got Leo DiCaprio. He's method. He loves going into his character. He's got this scene covered. I don't need to work with him as extensively on what his character is or right. what he, his motives behind his actions. He's got that covered. Uh, Orson Welles was, was not like that. He, he, I, you know, part of the reason I think he works so closely with them, at least with Citizen Kane and maybe in some other stuff is, I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of the actors in Citizen Kane were not actors. That was their first role. And which is really surprising because they all do a phenomenal job. Interesting. Um, but he worked closely with them. And I don't know why he decided to kind of do first timers or whatever, but he did very much ensconced in theater. And of course, uh, another huge thing that made Orson Welles popular was, I believe, even before Citizen Kane, correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, but he did a radio theater program called War of the Worlds. And that, forgetting when that was, was that in the 30s, Rachel? Yes. It was in the yeah, 30s, and the it 30s. was a thing where, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of people were freaked out because it was, you know, a sci-fi thing, but he read it in the sense as if it were an actual news program, not, a, you know, a piece of theater or a piece of fiction. People freaked out. They thought aliens were actually attacking the Earth. Um, Gosh. And uh, that's how good he is. That's how <laughs> how good he is as an actor. He may, really pulls you into his story, doesn't he? If you actually think that aliens are landing outside your house. That's hilarious. Um, but the guy very much heavily involved in theater, character, you know, voice, language, all of that to tell different stories, uh, which I think is very appropriate that he was, you know, put on this record. Um, so anyways, uh, and, and he went on to direct and star many more films after Citizen Kane that I think could be wrong, but I think that was his first feature film with Citizen Kane. 
His very first one. Yes, Dang, I believe dude. I believe so. Yes, Citizen Kane was, was first. his first. Yeah. Good um, lord. So yeah, and but again, that, he had a lot of acting, you know, um, experience exactly. prior because through radio. Which I mean, wow. it, it, Citizen Kane was early forties. So I mean, Isn't he it was 44? doing. Uh, I gotta double check yeah, that. Yeah, now I'm we have positive. to. Uh, yeah. Crap. Um, yeah. Hold on. Let me go into Google real quick. But, Hold on. I'll Google you. Know, yeah. He had a lot of, and you know, because film was forty-one. Only, 41, there you go. Yeah, 41, I think 44 yeah. might have been It's a Wonderful Life or something. That's why I'm thinking about that. But yeah, so Citizen Kane is the early 40s. People were still listening to radio programs, sure. you know, yeah. um, and for their main source of entertainment. People didn't have a TV. You know, going to the movies was a fun thing, but um, it so they would have known Orson Welles um, had they listened to, you know, War of the World specifically, um, which was you know, his, his piece, um, that was about aliens attacking earth. So, I mean, people tuned in and they listened to radio primarily. So obviously then your voice, you know, linking this back to Alan Parsons is, you know, no wonder they heard him reading some Poe or, you know, his own, um, kind of paraphrase of sure. some of Poe's, um, essays. Yeah. And we're like, okay, this guy's voice is perfect. Yeah. You know, that's really cool. Either way, I know that was kind of an Orson Welles rant there, but who doesn't like Orson Welles, as we said before? Um, join us next episode when we talk about who doesn't like Orson Welles. And why we hate them. And why we hate <laughs> them. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot. So, well, that's I, we kind of talked through Orson Welles as, as it was going through the House of Usher, but um, it, it's honestly, in my personal opinion, I, I if I want to listen to this whole song or this whole record, I usually skip over the prelude. Um, the, the prelude has definitely it's 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 worth a listen for sure, um, and and definitely worth a listen uh, very intentively because um, the use of dynamics because uh, you know obviously as an orchestra your your job as an orchestra is to control the dynamics um, rather than you know playing a bass guitar and then the engineer compresses the crap out of it to make it to make it loud. Uh, the orchestra's job is to, of course, create dynamics, and they do a phenomenal job with that because it it is jarring in certain areas of the of the prelude that just kind of they really just holy crap kind of pop out and freak you out, especially at the very end of it. Um, and uh, so it's it's cool though, and uh, probably a good thing to listen to it like you know I don't know four in the morning that'd be a that'd be a good time to listen to this. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. It's freaky. But it is freaky, but but also is um, uh, obviously has a very very uh, of course back with the Orson Welles intro and then and then the orchestra, which was conducted by Andrew Powell, like I mentioned before, and uh, but uh, yeah, there was uh, of course the prelude, which then goes into Arrival. Um, and unless you guys have any anything to say about the prelude, I, I say we just go ahead and move on to Arrival because I am so down to do Arrival. For sure. True. I don't know if we want to provide context like the other ones, because this is one of Poe's longer short stories. That is true. Yeah. Which is why it has five parts. Right. I'm Whoa. joking. That's that that's Whoa. there's no correlation there whatsoever. Okay. Well <laughs> uh, well let's let's go ahead and lay that down then. Uh, let's let's give a brief I'm I'm looking to Rachel as if I'm just expecting her to start talking now. Uh but uh, what what is the uh, the fall of House of Usher? What I guess general story behind it? It's a, it's one of his longer short stories. Is that right? It is, but actually, um, Doctor Tar and Professor Feather is longer 
Um, really? It is, but there's a lot more dialogue, so that kind of adds to the page space, you know? Sure, um, yeah. This one, probably just from, you know, sheer count of words, probably is longer. It's a lot of um, description. Um, Drew, have you read this one? I have. It's it's not one of my all-time favorites, but it's been it's, a while, um, and uh, I, I don't remember all of the details. I think I know the gist of it, though, um, so. Yeah, I hadn't read this one actually it's a very famous piece of his that lots of people read especially when you're studying Poe in like high school or whatever that one's usually thrown in right um I ended up reading like Pit in the Pendulum and some other ones that I kind of would have loved to see what their interpretation would have been I was like oh man where's Pit in the Pendulum you know um but um I ended up reading this one recently because of you know but I, I had heard the you know the title I had known this one versus um, Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. But, you know, the main premise of this story is that there's a gentleman who is going to see his good friend, Usher. Uh, that's the guy's last name. Um, and he's like the last of a line um, for this famous house. Uh, um, the, the last of the line of this family. Um, and which is why it's called the fall of the house of Usher. Okay. Um, but it's a big house, right? It's yeah, like a it's, mansion. It's, great, it's this great mansion. He lives there basically all alone, except um, his sister Madeline, or Madeline, I don't know which um, would be appropriate. I think it's pronounced different ways at different times, but it's spelled the same. Um, Madeline lives there with him, but she, um, and he gets a very, very creepy vibe, the narrator of the story, when he first encounters her. And she like just looks at him and he just talks about the way that it's like just this cold, piercing look. Um, but there's no dialogue. They, they don't speak to one another. He just sees her. But the the um, the gentleman, Usher, he um, has a very close relationship with his sister. Um, but like days later, he passes away. Or she passes away. Excuse me. She passes away. The main reason that this guy has come to visit him, though, is that he's also not doing well. Um, and so anyway, his um, his sister passes away and they bury her um, in like the dungeon or like, you know, b below the house. Mm -hmm. They bury her below the house in a and basically I think Usher's room is right above where she would be buried, you know. Um, and that's intentional, obviously, um, as is everything that Poe writes. Um, but he basically starts to decline in his health even more and, and go somewhat mad. Um, and, and the end of the story is that he is hearing things. Uh, and he's like, do you not hear it? Do you not hear it? And at the very end, you know, the gentleman who's the narrator is in the room with Usher and um, he's basically telling him, my sister is on the other side of this door, implying that they buried her alive, that she was still alive when she was buried. Gotcha. Okay. And he opens the door. And this is where I don't know, again, if it's reliable or not, because I don't know if it's a ghost that they actually see or if she actually was buried alive. Um, because he writes that, you know, there's um, blood upon her um, shrouded figure um, on the robes. And, and then she basically falls into the room upon him and they both die. Um, and then the house, like the, the guy's like, I'm getting the hell out of here. You know, they're both dead. He runs out of the house. And as he's running away, the house crumbles and falls 
behind him, like literally. So you get the, the figurative fall of the House of Usher as this guy is the last of his line and he dies, as well as a very literal, like this house then like crumbles away behind him. Um, but you're saying that the that the, the narrator is is in, he's an actual character in the story? Yeah, he's in, he's there to be, his friend has written to him and said, hey, will you come and stay with me? Um, okay, so this is a, a friend of the of the yeah, of Usher. guy. Right, yeah, so Usher is the friend. Okay. And, and he, Usher is and the he, one okay. who is, you know, has the house and is the one whose sister dies gotcha supposedly. okay okay um that's interesting i was it was something that i heard that I, a common theme and this may i may be wrong correct me if i am but it seems uh, i think aren't most if not all of the 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 poems slash short short stories that we've had on this album so far in terms of the literature they're all told from an objective point of view we're never we're never a character in in one of the poems are they all told from object like from a narrator from an objective point of view or are oh, we like, they're all written in first person they are yes. all not okay. yes yeah, so not objective so not objective, so not objective. like he's okay. in the story yeah. he's in the story okay okay but he's telling he is, is, recounting is that also the story common to you. is is that common in with... poe absolutely yes okay that's mm-hmm. what i was thinking okay because yeah. I, I didn't know if we were I don't know. I kind of imagined the, the at least the Casa Montiato, the, just that story being told from an objective point of view, like we're watching no, this no, no, happen. No, no, no. But you're and doing in fact, you are you are reading it. You are reading it from the point of view of the gentleman who is killing Fortunato. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Okay. okay. I didn't know that. I right. Mean, he actually does actually have a name. Mentions in the beginning. But... Does he have a name? His name is Montresor. That's yeah. right. It's That's because right. Of, it's because um, Fortunato says it. If he doesn't, That's you right. have That's never right. known. That's right. Because uh, I was wondering that. I was like, it's, it's, you know, I read it just the other day, but I was, <laughs> you know, you hear Fortunato and Lucchesi just a couple more times than him because I think yes. Fortunato says it maybe once or twice and that's it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I gotcha. Um, but, anyways, that's an interesting uh, story. For... Yeah. They're, they're all first person. And in fact, in Amontillado, he actually references the audience member, him or herself, right? He says, you who know, you know, my character and blah, blah, blah. I could pull up. I'm sure Rachel has it with me. Yeah, he says, you who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. Right. And so so he's talking to to you. um, Or, you know, that's the other thing is that's kind of great thing about literature. It's open to interpretation. Is he talking to you or do you think he's talking to another person in that world, in that universe, right? Is this a letter to, you know, Telltale Heart is very much that way too. Um, I really wanted to read the beginning of Telltale Heart for you guys just because I absolutely love it. Um, and now I've lost it in my, my book. I'm going to find <laughs> it again um, real quick because the opening paragraph of um, Telltale Heart is incredibly iconic um, as well as just um, a really amazing piece of literature. Yeah, he's talking to you, the audience. So this is just an example, but he okay. says, True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of acute hearing. I heard all things in heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. So he is recounting to whoever is reading this. And I think that's the way he mainly writes. Gotcha. Okay. That's interesting. And but but also I, I think is because um, I was I was wondering if that was if that was going to be a common a common theme with because obviously the way that the that Alan Alan Parsons project portrays the the record is of course from an objective point of view of the story 
you know, I, but I, I didn't know if it was, um, you know, the way that they're writing the lyrics was actually from, you know, maybe like their objective point of view of the subjective point of view of the character in the story. You, you get what I'm saying? Am I making sense here? Maybe no, crickets. Drew, I, you, I was like, I, I'm trying to think about what you were. Okay. So like, I, I was, I was curious to think of the way that, and then I'm just, now I'm talking about Alan Parsons rather than, yeah, rather than yeah, Edgar I got Paul. you. but I was wondering if, if you guys have an opinion about whether, okay. So the, the way that the songs are written, of course, they're not d directly taken from the poems, right? The, these are lyrics based on the stories I wanted. I was, I was curious and I don't even know if there's going to be an answer to this or if there's one or two, whatever. But I was curious to know if the way that they wrote the story was their perspective of the subjective point of view of the character in the story. Or if it, if it was just kind of like, let's encapsulate this story just from kind of a vibe oh, point of view. Right. Well, or, in Cask of Amontillado, they do say you who – kind of the similar thing as he does at the beginning that we just read of Amontillado. He says – um you who are wretched and who's something run free, you know, like he's, he's kind of talks in that way. Yeah. Um, so it almost makes it first person. It in, does. In and, sense, and right. In Telltale, Telltale Heart, Heart is, is first person goes, as well. It's I first, would say. first person, right? I've seen things in heaven and hell, I've, you know? Yeah. So, so they're, they're kind of they're what, so, so I was right when I was saying that they are, they are giving their perspective, like they're writing lyrics of their perspective of the point of view of the main character in the story. Yes. That's really cool. That's really mm -hmm. interesting. Because I was thinking it was just kind of like, you know, like when you when you write a when you write a story, I mean, I'm, I'm going to take like 2112 for example. It's just a, a simple one. You know, we we are like taking like uh or and something, you know, with Neil's Ayn Rand or something like that. You know, he's not obviously taking things directly out of the book or out of the story or whatever, but it's right. kind of like it's it's kind of like creating a story based on this story. You know what I'm saying? Not not throwing myself into the story from my perspective. I'm just writing my own story out of inspiration of that story. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So that's that's what I was curious because I, you know, I mean, even we, Drew and I, I mean, we've done that. You know, with with our second album when when we did Metris and everything. Drew wrote a story that was you know based off of um, uh, 1984, right, right, right. But but we didn't insert ourselves into the story of 1984 you didn't recount kind of 1984 from yes. your own words basically exactly yes yeah. yes that and so that's that's really interesting that they're that they're recounting it because that's from my perspective i always thought that was the case i always thought that they were just talking about their oh you know like oh we're, we're writing something based like based on a true story quote unquote like in the film industry you know which is which is cool but like actually telling the story from your perspective that's really unique and a lot more unique than just telling something based off of the story, mm -hmm. which is super cool. We should probably get going. We should probably start moving on here to the to arrival. Um, we're starting to bump up on time here, but <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. This is great. This is good stuff. Um, well, I think so it's, let's let's yeah. I, I'm sorry, Drew. I just what was that? Shoot, what was that? Yeah, I think part of the reason is just because we're analyzing two components here: the music, which we usually do, which is about an hour, and then also the actual context behind it, which is Poe. So there's true. There's a lot to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good stuff, though. We may, we may. Uh, I'll probably make this a two-part episode. No, um, no, just so we can split it out for everybody. No. Uh, so let's let's go ahead and let's shoot. Let's go ahead and listen to Arrival, which now makes sense in the context of the story why it's called Arrival. 
let's listen to this one of probably my my second favorite of the uh, piece or part of this uh of this song it's so good it's it's okay again it's that sense of bubbling or rising from the those yes. keys in the back on top of this you know horrifying thunder right in the background oh, yeah. and now knowing that it's the this this big isolated house in the middle of nowhere in this huge mansion yep. with lightning and thunder. I mean, it's you know quintessential horror movie feel, right? Yep. <laughs> or murder yeah. mystery oh, yeah. feel. It's brilliant. It's a great. It's it's really good, dude. That man, the organs on this album sound amazing. Yeah. The cathedral yeah. organs, all of these organs, are, are just they're excellent. And honestly, do you know it was really funny? I was just when, we, when as soon as this is coming on, it's like you know we had the thunder and then the organ started fading in. It kind of reminded me of of uh, of Tearpen a little bit. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't understand. I don't really know why. It just kind of had that kind of same kind of like swelling kind of thing. Uh, it was it, yeah. Either way, it's super cool. But this song is. I love all of the the, the guitar swells, the simple the simple drum groove, the arpeggio. That's the arpeggiated like synthesizer thing that's yep. kind of going in and out throughout the song. Yep. Um, I actually have a story about the um, about the thunderstorms on this. If you guys would like to hear it, it's yeah, uh, pretty pretty cool here. Um, I, I kind of ripped this from the internet here, so I'll just kind of read it verbatim of what what I copied from the internet here, because um, uh, just forewarning, these aren't my words. Um, but uh, so it says this this is what they said about when they while they were recording, and I, I love like. The, all of the the studio stories i love that stuff that's that's right down my wheelhouse so when they were recording the uh when they were recording arrival it was the height of summer in august in london and there was no probability of any rain whatsoever in the area so the sound effects library at um at abbey road which they did use for like the crowd noises in um uh, uh what is it uh, uh dr tar professor feather uh the crowd noises were taken from from the effects library that that Abbey Road had, um, but they didn't have. Um, they had some fairly inadequate samples that they scoured the newspapers to see where weather conditions might be more promising. So they were like looking for rain. You know, it's like we need rain. Where is rain? We need to go find rain. Um, so they were experimenting with a dummy head microphone, which is just a. It's called a binaural microphone. It's it's literally a mic that's shaped like a head. Um, it's meant to um, kind of encapsulate. It's supposed to give like a highly realistic surround sound essentially and so um even on a stereo recording and so and they were prepared to fly anywhere in the world with this large rubber head to record this effect uh, is what is what this says which is hilarious so nowhere in the world indicated thunderstorms and just as if they were about to give up hope 
the skies over Abbey Road opened up in the most torrential storm any of them had ever experienced. So Alan quickly fitted some long leads to the dummy head, stuck it on a microphone stand, and took it to the garden behind the studio and waited for the next peal of thunder. The rain was belting down so hard it bounced off the rubber head, making a noise that the thunder could not be properly heard. So they uh, improvising, Eric, Eric Wolfson, and the bass guitarist David Patton rushed into the rain and held this sheet above the dummy head to keep the rain off. Standing under the sheet they held above their heads, Eric and David waited for the next pe uh, peal of thunder, which duly came, and the two of them exploded into laughter, again totally wrecking the recording. And so eventually, however... By not looking at each other, they managed to stifle their amusement and a satisfactory sound effect was attained and used straight onto the recording. And if you actually hear in, in that part of the song, you'll, when you're listening to, the, um, uh, listening, to the, listening to the rain, you'll hear the rain, you'll hear the thunder, but you'll also hear kind of like a, like a gutter being overflowed and you'll hear like splashing water coming down um, okay. onto, onto the ground. And that's actually water that's dripping off of the sheet that was above them onto the ground behind them as, wow. as as the rain's falling off you can hear that in the in the recording uh but yeah cool little, fun little fact there it's like oh we need rain we need rain let's go get it let's go get it we run out here let's yeah. go get this rain and record it real quick and um and they got a big kick out of it while they were recording it so i oh, thought i sure it's a, a a pretty cool pretty cool little story i love stuff like that just like we need to get this how are we going to get it and, and and uh because you you can't i mean effects libraries were or common, but they didn't have everything. They didn't have everything right. you could possibly need. Right. And so, um, but yeah. And another thing that was used on this song that I also really love as well is actually a instrument, quote unquote, that Alan Parsons invented, uh, called a projectron, which is very, very, very similar to a mellotron. I can't. I don't. I won't go into the specifics of how that stuff works because it's way too technical. But um, it's used on this song as well as one more, uh, which is. Um, uh, which is uh, Pavan, which we'll which we'll listen to. It's, it's the only two songs that he uses this thing on, uh, but it's still really really awesome. But uh, yeah, what do you, what are you guys thoughts on the music of this of this song, as well as the portrayal to the literature and and I guess what part of the story is this mostly correlated to? Uh, you know, I think the uh, the the title of it is very fitting. It's the the arrival, and and you know each of these is obviously named intentionally the, you know for a reason so so this is i'm guessing what they want you to think of their interpretation of the the main the narrator coming up to the house um and you know given this creepy foreshadowing and placing a mood of awesome this dude who i don't know for a long time is calling me out here it's in the middle of nowhere and it's really creepy it's raining there's thunder and lightning um and uh, just when I look at this house, you know, my entire countenance has changed to that of, mm, I don't know, concern, maybe? Um, <laughs> right. Or, or wariness, maybe. Uh, I don't know what to think about this. Okay, this is creepy and all of that. So, uh, yeah, I think that well, this entire piece, all of House of Usher, really is like listening to the soundtrack of a film, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I agree. So I agree. This like this song kind of reminds me of like I don't know. It's just and throughout. I mean, all of the pieces. Sorry, go ahead. So, no, no, no. You're all good. Just throughout all of the pieces, when you listen, well, and all of the, all of the um, sections. I mean, of this one piece, when you listen actively, yeah. I think it tends to put pictures in your head, right? Um, 
and and again knowing the story it, it really helps a lot too uh but the the orchestral instruments produce a, a huge variety of moods haunting later on it even feels playful uh and then you know unnerving um but you know i see this decrepit old house and someone walking through it especially in in the later ones that we'll see in just a second but uh yeah just bizarre things that he sees and visions that he has uh based on you know, this guy, this, these creepy things going on, right? And you don't know if it's in his head or if it's not. Or, or you know, the guy he's visiting, if, if Usher is insane or not, you know? It's, it's sure. his madhouse. What's what's real and what's not, you know? And Does he know what he's what to expect when he's arrived? When he I don't think so. The, like, the, the guy's friend, does he know what he's in no. for when he gets to this house? Does he know that it's no. weird? No. He doesn't know that it's creepy at all? No, Okay. not at all. So, so it's it, kind of like... Well, and it's funny, he actually says here... Although as boys we had been even intimate associates, yet I really knew little of my friend. So he hadn't heard from the guy in probably forever. You know? Right. Okay. Yeah, because I was, about I was family thinking... history. He knew that they were rich, that they had this big mansion. Right. You know, I mean, he kind of knew where he was going in that sense, but I don't think he had any clue. You know, I mean, clearly yeah. he's like had no idea that he had a sister. Like, I mean, I, I think you know that that's like it's a surprise to him to see her. You know, um, there. Yeah. So it seems like he really has very little connection with the guy at all, but the guys, you know, obviously they did at some point in their lives. Cause he writes to him and says, Hey, will you come and be with me? You know? Right. Yeah. Is there, is there any mention of rain in, in the short story? No, actually. Um, but it does say that the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens. Um, Could be and it does say that it is a dull, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, during the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback um, through a singularly dreary tract of country. So obviously, okay. it is set to be dark and foreboding, even yep. if rain is not yeah, there. Yeah, kind of forecast, or mm -hmm. if, even if it, so. So what I was the reason why I was asking that because I was wanting to know if the if the rain was metaphorical or if it was like actually mentioned in the story. Probably their own interpretation. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, the rain, I think, is a is an awesome, an oh, awesome I love way it. to open that up, though. Yeah, and and obviously this this whole piece flows, you know, the whole thing flows straight through, kind of like our you know your concept, you know your classic concept album. Um, obviously we have them chopped up, but um, and uh, the way that they flow into each other, the way that the the prelude goes into Arrival is awesome because you have this kind of like jarring hits extremely loud and then it kind of crashes and then you hear this kind of rain come up and uh and whenever when i listen to this and i'm thinking now of the story what i picture while listening to this song is this you know this guy rolling up in you know like a model t or something like that you know whatever it, just old old timey whatever but he's rolling up to this massive mansion it's got like vines up on the walls and it's forecast and it's very out in the middle of nowhere and the music, how that's portraying, you know, this guy's mood as, or, or not his mood, but I guess his thoughts as he's approaching this house of being like, oh crap, what is, what is this? What is going on here? Um, because the, I think the song, even though it has some interesting uh, elements to it, I think it's also dark at the same time. It, it, I don't know, like the, the synthesizer and everything seems i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm like trying to relate it to pink floyd so much that i'm like every time i hear that i relate it to 
something like Pink Floyd because this like Arrival really does sound like a Pink Floyd track to me. Uh, that's something they would have done in the seventies, early seventies during their you know um, kind of their glory years with that. But with with Roger and everybody, I can imagine like some Roger vocals going on behind this track. Huh. I don't know, Drew. Do you hear that? Um, like, can you can you picture that? Does that sound like something, or am I am I just crazy? Because it it, it has a weird vibe to it. Like, it has like I, I feel like four different emotions, <laughs> like while listening to it. Yeah. Um. You know, I hadn't thought of that, but no, I can I can definitely, I can I can, I can see that to an extent. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. The droning guitars, the swelling guitars, the organ, the rain, um, and then this. The, the synthesizer is kind of carrying it, which kind of reminds me of like a car driving, like the, the like this. It's just like the cars is rolling. Right. Um, but uh, I wanted to show you guys something. I made something um, that I want you guys to listen to, because when I listen to this song, um, it reminds me, like I said, of Pink Floyd a lot. And I'm actually uh, I created a little audio file of this song. Next to Pink Floyd pieces. Um, to, to hear some certain similarities, but I wanted to, I, I was listening to it and I was like, there were two things. There were two things that I heard. I was like, oh, that sounds like Pink Floyd. And I, so I created this little track. Check, check this guy, check this out. I know I know you know exactly what 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 all that is. So like the the well, I I had actually when I it's funny that you put that because uh, yep. like two two of those I may not recognize, but every time in Arrival that I hear that kind of gung, 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 I think yep. of one I of these days, of one of these days, these days you I, do. Yes. Oh wow, I yep. always yep. have. So it's funny that you yep. put that there because I have always I have yep. always paired those two together. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, and me I, too. I don't I don't know if Alan Parsons was a part of that. No, he probably wasn't a part of that project because that was before Dark Side. And I think the first thing that Alan Parsons did with Pink Floyd was yeah. uh, was Dark Side. But I'm sure he knew their stuff before yes. having worked right, with yeah. them. Right. So. Because because wasn't because, well, Metal was what, seventy one and then Adam Hart Mother was seventy was seventy. Wait, no, no, no. Was seventy. 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 And then okay, so hold on. So Metal was was seventy one, then Dark Side was seventy three. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, Adam so metal was before metal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so metal, obviously, uh, this song came out right before. So I imagine it was like, you know, this guy wanted to check out their discography right before doing their, doing their next work. And yeah, every single time I hear that, like, kunk, 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 like to somebody like knocking on a door Yep. Or, or it's, it's really creepy, but really cool. Cause it's not, it's not rhythmic. Like it's not meant to fit in the bar or anything. It's just an effect. Um, that they use, but then also the the use of that synthesizer. I can only imagine that he got that inspiration from Rogers, you know, creating a synth. I mean, they're probably pop. They were probably pretty popular at this point, but still, like I, I just imagine because the first track that was that was in there was on the run, which is on the dark side of the moon, which is on yeah, and then the second track by Pink Floyd is um, uh, one of these days, which is off of of metal, another Pink Floyd track, which was two years before Dark Side. But yeah, I just I created that because I, I every time I hear those two pieces. I hear those two Pink Floyd tracks and um, which, which kind of to me shows the inspiration 
possibly that Alan Parsons got from Pink Floyd. So, but, uh, but anyway, let's, uh, let's take a, we'll throw on the, uh, how do you pronounce this word? Intermezzo? Pavon. In- intermezzo? Or, uh, sorry, oh, no. oh, sorry. I was, yeah. like, I was thinking about what we no, talked no, about. No, no. I, right I wrote that down. I got yeah. that. <laughs> in- intermezzo, is that what it is? Yes, intermezzo. Okay. So, you know, it's like it's like it's only a minute long. It's just almost like a little bridge, a little yeah. interlude, yeah. you know, if you will, you know, it's, between it's, the two pieces. It's so weird that this is a whole song, though. Like it's taking up an entire track on the album. Um, I feel like this could have been just easily put at the very end of Arrival, which then goes straight into Pavon. Mm-hmm. But I, who knows? I, mean, I, well, I don't know and why it's the fact that you know. Um, it was inspired by, uh, or some of the, you know, a, um, opera, you know, so like a prelude sure. was, yeah. if it had some operatic, um, inspiration to it. Um, you, you know, you have preludes and overtures and intermission, you, you know, um, all those kinds of, um, in between pieces in an opera. Um, yeah. so, and because of the orchestral nature of, again, the prelude, you know, I think it's in some ways they were kind of splitting up the arrival, wanting to really highlight that versus the now the rest where, you you know, the story is going to just unfold, you know, um, yeah, in music. Um, so they're breaking up. Um, they're giving you the, you know, the full um, operatic effect if you I mean again and this this is one whole piece divided into parts so right just the nature of how different this is compared to um the rest of the album I think yeah yeah it, it, the 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 orc the orchestra the orchestras all of all of the arrangements are amazing on this when it comes to just the the portrayal of the the haunting the haunting sections and parts of the of the of the album as well as this story now knowing a little bit a little bit about it as well um it's just it's i think it's i think these these or this orchestra is brilliant all all of the the pieces and the writing of it is awesome um and they do a really good job of of creating emotion throughout the entire thing the entire thing it's really good but um let's move on to uh pavan which is the uh the fourth piece and i've actually this is pavan and fall i combined the two um for a little bit more dramatic effect here but uh fall is only it's only 51 seconds long and it's really just a uh kind of like the uh oh shoot oh i'm trying to relate it i was gonna make a really good reference and i was gonna i was gonna pop what is what is the name of the song at the very end of uh, of Sergeant Pepper's, the one that has the 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 rising 
a day, day in the life? life? Yes, yes, yes. My goodness, my I heart was, is hurting that you couldn't think. Of I that. know. I it was. I was so. Bl- <laughs> I re- I was. Yeah. I drew a blank on that one. I'm sorry, but uh, fall is kind of the the same idea, so to speak. Um, who knows where that where they got the idea from? I think it's mainly because of just the story um, that 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 pulls that out. Yeah, but I would argue that for let's sure. Let's listen to let's listen to this, which is the uh, second longest piece of the five of the five parts. Um, and personally, my favorite. double bass dude that upright bass man yeah you can hear it you can hear those overtones coming in with it it's i've always wondered what i've always wondered what this this instrument was that's 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 played throughout this thing like that high that's that's way too i don't know if there's some kind of effect thrown on it but on the liner notes here, it says there's a credited harp player on this song. I was going to say, is it like a harp or like a yeah. mandolin or something? Yeah, it's yeah. got to be some type of stringed I, I, instrument for sure. Yep. I mean, they're, they're, well, actually, it's funny that you mentioned a mandolin because Hugo DeAlton is credited on this song as for playing mandolin. Um, there's mm-hmm. string, string bass, drums, acoustic guitars, um, which are played by two different people, a harp, harpsichord, uh, cymbalom, and cantel, cantelli? Probably that sounds more of like a maybe a percussion instrument. I don't know. Um, organ, mandolin, and, and synth, which was later added in the 1980s and in, in the, on the 87 version. But I love the the way he like like the way he like slides that up and everything. Yep. That that whole riff is so memorable to me. Um, and uh, really cool. What is the meaning of Pavan? Oh, I just looked it up, and now it was a dance, really? okay. right? It was a dance yeah. in the 16th, um, 17th century. Yeah, it's it's a dance. Um, well, I looked it up so that I could make sure I was pronouncing it correctly as well. Okay. Um, a stately dance in slow duple time, popular in the 16th and 17th centuries, and performed in elaborate clothing. So you know, like at one of the, a grand ball, like a tribal you know, that they would dance be having. No, 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 not tribal. Like we're thinking 16th and 17th century. So you're thinking oh, okay. Elizabethan. So that yeah. when that's why I threw out, is this the mandolin? Because I immediately think about yeah. flutes, mandolin, harp. All of those instruments yep. were the ones that were being used at a grand ball in right. colonial what, days, right. you know, well, or in early, you know, Elizabethan. What this could be is oh, when I start to build this, up now. Yeah, what this could be is maybe I don't know. I'm thinking of Anastasia when she's walking through that hall, and then all of those things start to dance. All of like the ghosts of the the, the people oh, who yeah. used to live there start to dance December, from, yeah. from yeah. Was that a DreamWorks? I know it's not Disney. Um, uh, uh, it's actually um, Fox. Oh, okay. Anyways, yeah. doesn't matter. Um, but <laughs> except that it's a great movie. Except it is great. But it kind of reminds me of that, where like maybe you're seeing like the visions of what this mansion, like how the ushers used to live, right before it got so depressing, where it was just Usher and his sister. Perhaps this was once a great 
well, not civilization, but a great place for parties and for rejoicing and for maybe even high society. And absolutely, it just kind of falls after that. You know, you've seen what it once was, and then directly after is the fall, which is where this is now its total and utter destruction. Wow. I uh, I just looked up the uh, a symbolome and a cantelli. Uh, a symbolome, excuse me if I'm pronouncing this wrong or incorrectly, uh, a symbolome is basically a very, very large dulcimer uh, built, made in Hungary. It's a Hungarian dulcimer, very large. I mean, I'm talking like the size of like a baby grand piano, um, which is pretty huge. But then also the uh, Gintelli, is a uh, a Finnish plucked instrument, so it's kind of kind of I would say kind of like a almost. I don't know how do you look at this? I mean, it kind of looks like a dulcimer as well, except a little bit smaller, and you hold it, which is interesting. Here is here is fall. This is the transition to fall right here. Take a listen to this. So that's my alarm in the morning. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Whoa. That would be hilarious if it was. Yeah, that'd be awful. Oh, that would be absolutely man. awful. But um yeah, really cool way to end that too. Just it has a it has a very, very uh, actually, yes, it it has it has a progression. The the prelude is um has has its moments of, of very jarring hits and and but it's but it's mostly mostly fairly soft and arrival starts picking up a little bit intermezzo then goes into pavan pavan has a a, a really almost kind of uh, pavan kind of is reminds me really just like the climax of of this entire piece and then the fall just just takes it takes it and runs you know um but um pavan is i'm, I'm interested now that to see that there are so many uh eastern stringed instruments in pavan like why all of a sudden are we using some foreign you know we get we got like i mean a harp is never is not used anywhere on on the album except for pavan as well as the uh you know the symbolome and the cantelli and um the mandolin like that's not used anywhere except on this song which i thought is really interesting i don't know why um i mean it sounds really cool it sounds awesome but um it's interesting choice of instruments instrumentation especially for for uh for a song like this um but uh i'm curious now i want to know what your what your thoughts are what you guys thoughts are on the meaning of pavan and how it relates to what part of the story this is uh where it's coming from Um, i really like drew's interpretation of it for sure yeah yeah I i think i mean that's that's what i envision when i see uh with this and again i i think it's an interpretation like we've always been saying throughout this whole episode is that 
you know, they, they took some liberties with it. Cause I, I don't remember there any part in house of usher where he reminisces about, or like usher does, or the narrator talks about what this place once was or whatever. But I think it's really cool to think of it that way. At least that's what I do of, of this once great place, because considering the title Pavan, right? Right. It's, okay. It's a dance, right? That was kind of, uh, you know, some big celebration of something. Um, and, uh, that's what I see it as, is maybe the ghosts of this place, what it once was, are starting to dance throughout this massive hall. I'm sure there was a massive hall in this mansion um, where dances and parties were probably, uh, you know, happened. So, yeah, it's an interesting, that's what I very in-depth, in-depth uh, in meaning to, to, to that part, to that section of, right. the, of well, the piece. Because what I, I think it is, because Rachel, I think, said it was open to interpretation. With like, okay, is yep. is she buried alive or is it her ghost? I I thought it was her ghost when I read this that she was right. dead and that she was buried, and then her ghosts or uh, ghost uh, starts to haunt the halls of this place, and so I think that plays into the idea of her joining the ranks of you know other ghosts of other ushers who have always lived in this place throughout the past, you know, in this place, and she maybe joins the dance. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's yeah. right or not, but that's what I think. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool, really cool. So, Rachel, do you have any have any thoughts on the uh, on anything with Pavan or or Fall? No, I think you guys got it. I really yeah. liked. I really liked reason. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely learned uh, a lot about every single one of these songs. Personally, for me, is is uh, and and definitely some more interpretation to the music to have a have a greater appreciation uh, for the music because I've probably heard this album for a couple of years and uh never never really never dived into that aspect of it no for no particular reason just never out of just choice but um we're gonna end the episode today with to one in paradise um and so everybody will be able to get get to hear this song and you'll definitely hear a stark contrast uh musically i believe from this yeah. song from the rest of the album but also right. very fitting to put it as the last song i think it ends in a very very um a good way i like i like having the um the lighter right lighter out, well, out kind of outro so to speak right and i just want to add i think it's great that they included this on the album and something that is a little bit lighter from edgar Allan poe because oh yeah edgar Allan poe had established himself and still has you know established himself as like you know the the father you know or the founder of a lot of gothic literature and uh that feeling of even gothic today uh, crud, even South Park, there's a little joke on it where they're talking about the goth kids and then their inspirations and everything. It's like, yeah, but do you know the real one? And like the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe comes up. Like, <laughs> wow. You know? So even absurd comedies like that recognize him as, as writing a lot of macabre content. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you look through his pieces, he also has some beautiful, beautiful pieces. Uh, and especially with his poems, particularly with his poems. I mean, you look at mm -hmm. Annabelle Lee and you look at this one, To One in Paradise. So I think it's perfect that they had yes the majority of what he wrote and what he was established himself was dealt with death and insanity and yeah. you know a lot of horrifying stuff and then you've also got this which is like whoa and, but you know even with this stuff even the beautiful stuff it has the very very just a tinge of melancholy put in there too yeah i was about to say it's still very melancholy yeah. it's pretty but it's it not is... necessarily happy you know right sure the poem is um mourning a lost love who has mm -hmm. passed away and moved on and being kind of stuck here on the other side of 
paradise. Mm -hmm. um, so it's written to one in paradise, almost longing to be with them, which is longing to die, you know, so that's a very, but it's not an unfamiliar feeling, you know, I think um, losing a loved one um, at times. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a very somber piece, um, but it's beautifully written as opposed to Telltale Heart, which you just get the insanity. Yeah. Or even Dr. Tarn Professor Feather, which is supposed to be amusing in its darkness. Um, this is not supposed to be that. It's almost supposed to be beautifying uh, a state of mourning in a way. Um, yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah. I yeah. think, I think a, uh, and something that I really like about the song when, when we play it for everybody that I really love that adds that character to it is the choir. The choir has much more of a prominent area uh, in, in, in the mix of the song. And you, you really get to, they really get to shine a little bit more uh, rather than some of the other stuff, which, which the choir is there, but it's, it's kind of um, shadowed a little bit by other instruments. So, um, and uh, which is that, that boys choir, which I think does a really good job of like creating this cloud almost, you know, it feels, it feels very kind of, you know, like the clouds uncover and you see this Island kind of thing, you know, that kind of imagery, at least in my head, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. And the, the lead singer on that is, is Terry Sylvester, which is, uh, which is the lead singer of the Hollies. Yep. And, uh, who, who sang this track. And so, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll play that for everybody, but that is the entire record right there. Um, well, and I, I wanted to reiterate that this is the only piece where they actually do use word for word Edgar Allan Poe. That's right. Yeah. Works. I remember you mentioned but that. I mean, you know, Orson Welles references, you know, a dream within a dream, you know, and that is actually a quote from that poem. Um, but the entire last stanza of the poem is what is spoken word at the end of To One in Paradise. And I do find it appropriate that they decided to end the album with actually quoting word for word yeah part of post word yeah uh, as you know paying homage to him yeah and and the uh on the liner notes here it says that the uh the narration isn't orson wells uh but it's actually uh leonard whiting which is one of the vocalists on the album let me see if i can find him which one he was on I, i'm pretty sure he sang you referenced it earlier yep. and i can't remember yep. which one the it raven was. he's he's sing, he's the lead he sings lead on the raven so that guy who sings "Lead on the Raven" is doing the narration of this of the of the very end of "To One in Paradise." Um, so, which is uh, um, cool. I wish it was or Orson Welles again, but you know I, we can't. Well, but his voice is a little bit more ominous and deep, and this is not supposed to be yeah. that. It yeah. lends a totally different flavor to it, as it should. True. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. So, all right. Well, all three of us would certainly like to thank you all for sticking around for this. Uh, this two hours that we've been speaking about this record. Um, hopefully you have learned something. Uh, I know I have for sure. And uh, please uh, subscribe and share. We would love if you would uh, tell a friend to listen to this record. If you haven't listened to this record before, please go take a listen to it. We appreciate all feedback and comments on the episodes. Uh, Drew, what is, uh, what is the next episode going to be on? What album will we be listening to next? Next week we're gonna do something that's out of our wheelhouse, totally just like out last of our week or, or last episode. Um, so this will be Ladder Alice is the name of the album by the band Tool. So yeah, this is gonna be interesting, but definitely a group that a lot of people lump in with modern progressive rock. 
Yes. Um, or, or, you know, cause when did they start? I feel like they were a nineties, early two thousands yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, were, but uh, in the nineties. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've primarily done stuff from the late sixties, early seventies, yeah. the mid seventies, all that stuff. So this will definitely be super interesting. This is, I think, the most modern album we've reviewed. It, it right? definitely is. Yeah, we're 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 taking a uh, everything that we've been listening to so far has been ranging between sixty-seven and uh, seventy-six. We haven't gone yeah. anything farther than seventy-six. So we're we're going to jump an entire two decades uh, into yeah. into a different world of progressive rock, and we it's out of our wheelhouse. Not because we don't like modern progressive rock, um, but we uh, aren't. Uh, we've never really dived into the world of Tool, just the band, uh, to be to begin with. So it will be very interesting. I also know just from uh, kind of the the I guess you say the quintessential uh, comments about Tool is that they're extremely dark. So I guess we're going to be keeping this dark theme for for two episodes, uh, this episode right. and the next one. Um, but what we will uh, certainly try to do is go back to something a little bit more maybe happy-go-lucky the episode after so we don't start tanking downhill. Is um, happy-go-lucky a thing in prog rock? I have yeah, really. no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. We're going to do a Daft Punk record afterwards. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I like so, Daft Punk, you know. Either way. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you and, for and having me. Thank you for me. your input on this. This was absolutely, absolutely. phenomenal. Um, okay. I got three claps, guys. Three That's right. Claps. Three claps. You want one more? You want one more? Here you go. Oh, I'll go give for you one it. more. Yeah, we'll give you one more. Uh, Always can do one more. That's right. Yeah. So uh, wonderful. All right. Well, we will end this episode once again with Two One in Paradise, uh, which is a very uh, somber song, but very pretty song. And uh, we will see you all next time. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>